Welcome to episode two of Practical Philanthropy, Small Charities, Big Impact. I'm Lynn Tomlinson, Head of Philanthropy and Impact at Casanova Capital, and this is the podcast where inspirational people share their experience of giving their money, their time or their skills to have transformational effects on society. In this episode, you'll hear from Mary Rose Gunn, co-founder and CEO of The Four. The Four is an incredible organisation established in 2017 as a venture philanthropy fund, and it has awarded over 8 million to over 500 innovative small charities who are working to solve some of our biggest challenges. Mary Rose is the guru in something I know will resonate with many of you, finding, funding and scaling small organisations. Welcome to Practical Philanthropy, Mary Rose. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So can we start with something that's really perplexing me? I saw this horrendous statistic that 10% of the UK's charities get 90% of the funding. And I find that really quite staggering because anyone like me who advises philanthropists will tell you that funding smaller charities is something they really want to do and they really care about. So what's going wrong here? Why isn't the money finding its way to these smaller organisations? That's a great question. And it's something that we are sort of one of the major raison d'etres of everything that we are trying to achieve as a venture philanthropy fund. So I think it's because there are a number of barriers basically in the way, which are many of them unintentional for smaller charities in when they're trying to get a hold of funding. Um, And one of the major ones is that the funding is often behind uh, to access it you need to get behind and through quite complicated application procedures and processes and the bigger organizations have the fundraising machines to be able to do that so you know it, if it's not just direct marketing and and you know television advertising which is obviously the really really big ones but it's also for grant funding and funding from trusts and foundations you need to have people who know how to fill in the forms and know how to articulate what they're doing in 150 words or sometimes even 150 (laughs) characters. And when you're a small charity, you probably don't have access to the best fundraisers. And the system, many of parts of the system really aren't very fit for purpose in, in my view, because so much of the funding is just going to the people who've got the best fundraisers rather than people who've got the best operations on the ground. And it's a really important problem that we solve, isn't it? Because charities and smaller charities are really important to the UK. Could you just tell us a bit about how important they are? Yeah, completely and utterly. They are vital for us all, I think, because mostly... They are so well connected in their communities in comparison to the big organisations. They are really very, they know the communities that they serve, the smaller charities, um, whether that be because they've got an online community of people who've got specific types of disability or whether it be because they operate operate in a very specific geographical area and so they really know the people that live around the corner from them. Um, But it's also, I think, possibly more importantly in some ways, that is often where the best innovation comes from because they are so well connected with the challenges that they see people facing, they know how to come up with the best solutions. And, you know, there are, you know, there are definitely top-down solutions that can be very effective, but 
so often the most cost-effective ways of solving problems come from people who have been living those problems inside out for however long. And if we don't support small charities, we lose all of that innovation. And one of the things that we are absolutely about is trying to find those ones that have got really great solutions and then helping them to scale up if that is appropriate, become more sustainable, have greater impact or replicate their solutions so more people can benefit from them. And that was really interesting because if um, if you listen to episode one, I spoke to Alexandra Chapman, who um, whose family foundation established Ethiopia Aid and they've in more recent years, started a small grants program where they are trying to fund innovation and make relatively small grants compared to the other grants they're making. And I just wondered if you could um, sort of just give us an example of where relatively small amounts of funding have actually had a transformational effect, both on the charity, um, but also the people um, that it exists to to help. So um, Rich Graham's uh, charity Settle is operating with young people who've been through the care system. And there is a horrifying statistic that one in three young people who leave care are homeless within three years. And this is something that has been going on for a long time. And charities, local authorities, bigger organisations have really struggled with trying to solve the problem. There are complex needs amongst the young people who have been in care, as of course you can imagine. You know, they have often experienced some pretty traumatic events in their lives. They have um, had quite chaotic circumstances that they may have come from in order to end up in care in the first place. And, you know, horrifying uh, stories that have come out in recent years have shown just quite how unfit for as a lot of the care system can be. So when you're coming out of the care system, you often as a a young person, you know, you might not have the tools for general day-to-day survival and life knowledge that you need to live in private accommodation on your own. And Rich Graham was a young man at the time, he's still pretty young, but not quite (laughs) as young as he was, who had been working in various um, uh, homeless um, organizations and had realized that there was, this was a real issue, but it was also one that really didn't need too much of a complicated solution. And he felt he could really pull something together to change this and help these young people and make sure that they could have much more positive experience of living in private accommodation. And he said, look, I think we can do that by just providing a set of wraparound services. So for example, you know, you might need help writing your CV, you might need help learning how to pay bills properly and just put things on direct debit because, you know, when you're in care, the local authority pays for everything, but suddenly when you're in private accommodation, you need to make sure that you pay your television license, you need to make sure that you, you know, don't take out credit cards that you can't afford to pay back. Um, and so Rich set up a wraparound value, um, uh, coordination of services basically for these young people, which he called Settle as a as an organisation and um, was doing incredibly well and a very high success rate of keeping the, the young people that he worked with in their private accommodation. And uh, he went to a local housing association and showed them what he was doing. And they said, you know what, we'll pay for the service for this because it costs us a fortune when we have to evict young people who aren't paying the rent or the bills are racking up. Um, And we hate doing that. We particularly don't want to do it. And 
it would save us money if we pay for you to come in and work with these new young tenants and make sure that they have a much healthier start in living independently. Rich then, when we met him a couple of years later, had housing associations knocking on his door to bring his model of Settle into their housing association. And he had a real issue, though, because he was so busy delivering the services on the ground. He, I think he had one staff member at the time, and he just didn't have the time to scale up the organization to you know, build more partnerships and to take things forward. Um, and he was in a situation where no funder and nobody he spoke to would basically give him the investment style funding that he needed to free up a few of his days a week to work on the bigger picture with with Settle. So that was when we were able to give him a grant, which was £30,000 offered over three years. So really in terms of an, on an annual basis, not a huge amount of money, which freed up his time so he could get somebody in. Basically, he spent the money on getting somebody in to come and do more of his delivery work so that he could concentrate on the strategy. And Settle has gone from strength to strength since then. We're incredibly proud to have been able to support them in their development as a charity. We put them in touch with a senior credit officer from a big financial institution in London who helped them with some financial planning and modelling. They've now got 16 members of staff. They've helped over 600 young people. And they've got ambitions, which we love, to be working with 25% of the young people coming out of the care system in the next few years. And they look like they're on track to, to do pretty well towards that. So it's a fantastic story. And it's an example of where somebody who was very close to the problem really saw exactly what was needed to solve it because, you know, the sorts of uh, support up until Rich coming along that these young people were being offered was really just not working. Whereas now they've got a 99% success rate of people keeping an accommodation and these young people are going on to have much, much more positive lives. I want to take a moment to pause and reflect on this incredibly rich and detailed example Mary Rose has talked about here. Firstly, what struck me is this concept that those who are working in their communities close to those with lived experience or have lived experience themselves often come up with the most cost-effective and impactful solutions. Yet many of our services are designed by those who don't have this experience. According to Crisis, the cost of a person being homeless for 12 months is just over £20,000. Yet here we have a social enterprise that can reduce the homelessness rate of those leaving care from 33% to 1%. And that's an absolutely staggering change in outcomes. And the benefits to those people is very clear, but also the benefit to government given the cost to society of this intractable problem. And as we see so often, local authorities have no budget for prevention and it required someone like the four to fund settle with what is frankly a tiny grant in relation to the cost of the problem they are trying to solve. And that grant enabled the organisation to scale up and reach over 600 people. That's an unbelievable social return on investment. For me, this example exemplifies the magic of the social enterprise sector in the UK and those who fund them. And so on to the topic of due diligence then, because I'm sure that's something our audience will be really interested in. But so 150,000 charities in the UK have less than 500,000 of income, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of charities to choose from. Yes. So if you are someone who wants to find a settle, which yeah. I think 
lots of people would. Yeah. Just how on earth do you go about it? If you're very specific, I think, about what you know you want to fund, then in addition to that, what things that you can do are, you know, go to the Charity Commission website and narrow down your search criteria. Um, Look at, there's an uh, online platform called 360 Giving, Mm -hmm. which looks at where funders are giving money to and who's getting money from, from where. It's about really making sure that you do in a lot of instances, you do the bulk of the mm-hmm. research. Yeah. So it is about thinking through as a philanthropist, you know, where are the causes that you want to support? And, you know, is it that you're really interested in working in your local area? Or is it that you're really interested in working in your local area and you're only interested in young people's charities? Mm-hmm. Because you can do quite a lot of narrowing down if you have worked out in your head what you're interested in small supporting. Great. And what when you're actually looking at a small charity, mm-hmm. what what really jumps out at you? What should people be looking for when they're having those initial conversations? So I think for us, the most important thing is people. Mm. And I mean, that won't really come as a surprise <laughs> to anybody. It's all about leadership and who you know, the solution and what they're doing has to be compelling. Mm. And that sort of goes without saying, but it's all about who are the people running the organization and do they know what, not just what they're doing, because obviously mm. they know what they're doing, but do you know that they know where they're going? When you ask them the right questions, are they giving you sensible answers mm. to them? So we don't, I mean, for example, with our due diligence, what we're looking for is we're looking for two fundamental things. We're looking for strength of leadership and the ability of our funding to be able to unlock some kind of significant change in the organization. So we as a funder aren't looking to fund business as usual. We're looking to give charities an opportunity for step change. Mm. So it might be in sustainability, but it might also be in scaling or resilience or growth of some sort Um, and growth and impact as well. So um, we are looking for those two things, but leadership we break that down into a number of four, in fact, categories, uh, to be exact. Uh, the first one is management of the organization, which is about, and it's not just about the people running it on an executive level, it's also about the board. Yeah. Do they have the right people around them to enable them to succeed? And if they don't, can we help them find them? So with all of the things that we're looking for, nothing has to be perfect, yeah. but it's about a willingness from the organization's perspective to acknowledge what they might be missing and look and willingness to to um to address that challenge so you know for example we funded an amazing organization that was a group of artists based in wiltshire who were reducing loneliness by running amazing workshops for um elderly many of them suffering from alzheimer's and dementia and they were so fantastic at what they did Mm. but their finances were a little bit messy (laughs) and it wasn't for us about you need to have perfect finances before Mm. we'll fund you it was about them saying yes we know they're not great but you know we're not we need to go on an excel course (laughs) and us saying no 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 you you're the artist you are amazing about engaging with the elderly people you know you run these fantastic workshops you have amazing results from what you do we know loads of accountants who could help you write create a a template spreadsheet and you just need to fill the numbers in and you know at the bottom will come come the figures that you need or is it that you need an accountant to join your board Mm. you know those are 
the sorts of questions that we're asking and the response to those questions is much more crucial than the situation at the start. So if they go, oh, no, 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 but we don't want any help on that, that would be a red flag. Yes, yeah. But when the charity says, oh, we'd love someone, do you think there might be someone mm. out there that could help us with that? That's when we kind of light up. We're like, absolutely. There are loads of people out there who love doing a spreadsheet um, and they would really, really value the chance to be able to share their skills with somebody who is actually changing lives on the ground. Quite often people think about philanthropy being about giving money, and of course that's true, but Mary Rose Gunn highlights something that's really important here about giving your time and your skills as well. And as you can hear from her example, the value to the organisation of what to us is a pretty straightforward piece of work is absolutely enormous. And in my experience, many people who get the most out of their giving are involved with a charity way beyond their money, very often using all of the tools at their disposal to affect the change they seek. And just that point about changing lives, and you mentioned it there as well, about, you know, you're amazing at delivering the intervention, you you do that best. How does someone know that the intervention is is the right thing to be funding? Do you do any of that due diligence in your process? So, yes, we are, there's a sort of nuanced answer to that. You know, we are, we're taking risks, mm. um, but we think that that's very, very important that you know, nobody has changed anything if they don't take mm. a few risks. So while we are doing a certain amount of due diligence on whether this is the right intervention or not, we're also not pretending to be experts in mm. every sector. I mean, the four is a sector agnostic funder. So we yeah. fund people working across any cause. You know, It can be in youth opportunity, it can be in racial justice, it can be in anything. And we don't ever set ourselves up as the experts in any of those particular cause areas. But the what we do expect is for the people running the leadership of these organisations, they need to be experts in social mm. justice or in you know, offering opportunities to young people who have maybe dropped out of the education system. Um, and it's we work out whether they are experts by asking them good questions. Mm. I mean, obviously, there is potential for, for them to be fantastic at giving good answers and then not being experts on the ground. But I, it's very unusual, I would mm. say. You know, it's like, um, uh, I mean, I liken it to Dragon's Den in that anyone watching Dragon's Den kind of knows he's going to get funding <laughs> because they answered the questions of the dragon. The dragons know how to ask the right yes. questions and they answer the questions really well. And, you know, one of the questions that we pose in due diligence um, is about, you know, what's the competition like in your sector? Who are you up against? Why are they better than you? And we do, um, we reference the the charities during due diligence. So we'll speak to board members as well as external referees. So, for example, if it's a charity that is offering a really exciting, creative um, arts and culture intervention in schools, then we will, perhaps one of the referees might be the head teacher of one of the schools that mm. they are working in and you know the questions will be posed to that head teacher you know why did you choose to work with this charity over others and you know why is it so good so we're getting a pretty good yeah. all around look at the organizations that we are funding and you know it's also very very competitive so only the the really the best are getting through um so in terms of reporting, everyone's favourite subject, um, how do you follow up with your investees in terms of the impact that they're making or reporting requirements? So uh, we do monitoring evaluation on an annual basis of the uh, 
charities that we are giving funding to. And that's done on a verbal basis. Mm -hmm. So we have conversations with them. We turn these into uh, written reports and we we turn them into data. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, we believe in not putting the burden of reporting on the shoulders of the charities because they're so busy with everything anyway. And our part of our due diligence process is about helping them set themselves some KPIs for their organization, which are, you know, markers that are right for them. And so they are reporting back to us on their ability and their success in hitting their own targets. So we are quite keen, we're very keen and keen to try and spread the word on this, is for people supporting small charities to try and make sure what they want the charities to monitor is something that's useful to them. Because I think with a lot of funding, they can find that they are tying themselves up in knots yeah. to try and meet what the funder wants to report back on because they are a funder for mm. specifically children's charities. Yes. So they need numbers of children helped as mm. their metric. Whereas if you're a charity that's working in a community and you are you know, doing a, a number of varied interventions, that might not be exactly what you need to measure. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. That's fantastic. And and you call yourself a venture philanthropy fund, which is really interesting because you know lots of the audience will be familiar with venture capital. So I suppose is it take just thinking about it in terms of taking on additional risk and growing companies, it's a very similar process and you wouldn't expect them all to do brilliantly. So yeah. what do you what do you think in terms of I mean, obviously you're so good at it now that all of you know, most of yours go on to better and wonderful things but when you first started out what do you think you learned from from that process and any failures that you might have had I think we right to be honest right from the start the success rates were really really high and I think that's because when you make it all about people it's not that difficult to spot the quality, you know, the people who have got vision um, yeah. and the people who are inspiring in running these small organisations um, are, they're not that difficult to spot because you just, there's just a feeling about them. You want to help them when you meet them. Yeah. And they are obviously so dedicated to the causes and the the difference that they're making. Um, that bit, I think, hasn't been the difficult bit. I think We've learned a lot about the value over the last five years that we, and then obviously we had a four year pilot before that as well. So over the last nearly 10 years now about how important it is. It's not just about the money. So we are providing unrestricted, it's unrestricted funding. That is mm -hmm. very important to mention. Um, uh, it's the unrestricted funding, but it's also about the connections with broader networks and also with the peer-to-peer -peer networks. Mm -hmm. So we um, now do spend quite a lot of time enabling the portfolio charities to meet each other because they learn enormous amounts mm -hmm. and get an enormous amount of benefit from being able to share skills and experiences. It's really lonely mm -hmm. running a small charity or a, 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 a non-profit in the UK. The funding landscape is brutal yeah. and it can be incredibly demoralising mm -hmm. and particularly when you know, we've had COVID, we've now got a cost of living crisis. And the people 
the leaders who are running these these um, uh, charities and social enterprises, you know, they are they are the good Samaritans of the world. They are the people who have seen a problem and stopped beside it and said, you know what, I'm not going to keep on walking. I'm going to try and do something about this and try and change this. And they are often doing that because they might have some personal connection with yeah. that problem. So it can be. It, one thing that we really advocate for with the organisations and the the portfolio charities is, you know, making sure that they've got the right support around mm -hmm. them where we can, so that they don't feel like they're on their own. They feel like they've got people who are operating from their side of the table, and that's something that I think it's really lovely. It's actually a phrase I had a conversation this morning with someone we we're working with, who's a, a, a foundation, and they said when they started up, they're quite new. They wanted to feel like they were on the same side of the table yeah. as the charities, and that that's when the power dynamic is right. Yeah. That's when you've really got it right as a philanthropist, is when the charity feels like you're on their side. You mm. can be a critical friend, <laughs> but you are on their side fundamentally. You're not just shopping as opposed to investing yeah. in them. Yeah. You're not just saying, oh, how many more children are going to have learned to read mm, by the end yes. of the intervention? You're saying, I love what you do. I love your mission. How can I help you yeah. further that? And that's a pretty amazing statement to end on, actually, I think. So this is obviously your area of expertise and you sort of devoted your entire career to it. How would um, someone listening to you who wants to follow your great work get in touch with you or where should they follow you online? Well, we have a website, which is thefour.org. I am also delighted to speak to people. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, at Mary Rose Gunn. We have newsletters that you can sign up for. We have networks if you're somebody who's interested in giving skills, but you don't necessarily have any resources. We have networks that you can sign up to where you can share everything that you've learned in your professional career. And we are just very keen to collaborate with people. So please get in touch. Fantastic. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to Mary Rose. I certainly did. Expertise and passion absolutely oozes out of that woman. I found so much to take away from my time with her, particularly this need to be really respectful of small charities given their limited resources and do as much of the heavy lifting as you can. How it's obvious when you meet the right leadership and just how unbelievably difficult and quite lonely it is for these incredible people to access the funding they need. Next up in episode three, we'll be talking to Sophie Marples from the Gower Street Foundation. Sophie went from funding women and girls to funding climate change. Why did she do it? What help did she get? And what were the challenges? Thank you for taking the time to listen to Practical Philanthropy. You can reach me on LinkedIn or at lynn.tomlinson at casanovacapital.com.